Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation features Yasmin Abdel-Majid. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week, I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, at Final Draft, we're dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with the First Nations of this, this country. Now, Yasmin Abdel-Majid, for many, is a person who needs no introduction. For many, uh, maybe that's for all the wrong reasons. Her bio is a veritable choose-your-own-adventure of cool stuff. She's an engineer. She's run oil and gas rigs. She's a Formula One mechanic, a social advocate. She's a writer, a novelist, a public intellectual. Talking About a Revolution is her latest book. It is a collection of essays, writings, and speeches that Yasmin has delivered, produced, published over the last 10 years. This is not traditional final draft fare, but it is still storytelling, and it is storytelling that connects in the best ways and the worst ways with that line that I gave before, these are the stories that make us who we are. And in speaking with Yasmin, I'm always amazed at her verve, at her intellect, um, and also just at how incredibly resilient she is. I cannot wait to present this conversation. So join me as we discover Yasmin Abdel-Majid's Talking About a Revolution. Hello. Hello, Yasmin. It is lovely to see you again. Lovely to see you too. How are you? I'm really good. You remember we chatted about this time last year? Maybe maybe 13, 14 months ago? I'm trying to think. It was around... Honestly? Uh, it was, it was Remind four. me, because I do remember, but I don't remember the exact conversation and my memory is terrible. I'm so sorry. Mm, that's okay. That's like, like I'm do- this is me being professional and like casually setting up in case I refer to this later and you're like, sure, <laughs> sure, hairy man. Yes, we've spoken. Yeah, you're, you're being very gracious. Um. When Listen, Layla came out, we chatted. Oh, we did. Yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. And um, well, it's lo- thanks for having me back, actually. Um, I want to acknowledge that talking about a revolution, um, I, there is, it is getting so much incredible press. I saw your Sydney Writers' Festival event. I have heard... Oh, thank you. It was, it was amazing. I've also heard... I think, I'm a, I think it was the Triple J interview you did... Um, and when a book is getting like when a book is getting this much attention, like, let's just call a spade a spade, triggering all my interviewer anxieties. Um, <laughs> not really. I just don't want to do the same thing. Like mm. I, I know, I know, I'm going to get my listeners who will happen upon this because they listen. But I think it also fans of you will seek this out, and I don't want them to be like, ah, oh, yeah, cool. We've heard Yasmin talk about this. We've heard this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did this at Sydney Writers Festival, but it was better. <laughs> um, and also, much like a book of poetry, a book of essays or short stories, there is there is so much content. I don't want to try and pretend we're going to cover mm. every single idea. I wanted to put a particular spin, and I wanted to stamp this with my show, which is, you know, in theory, we're usually talking to novelists. We're talking about literary fiction. Um 
and this yeah. is this is not literary fiction, but it is storytelling. And so my my pitch to you is I would like to take a spin on talking about a revolution, Yasmin the storyteller. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy with that? That sounds sweet. Yeah, it's also fun for me because we get to kind of talk about it in a different way. So good. So definitely. Good. Oh, good. Yeah. Good for both of us. I don't have to frantically rewrite yeah. an interview. <laughs> Win-win. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No so worries. Fun preambles aside, should we jump in? Yeah. All righty. I'm going to give us a bit of an intro, but then we'll do some questions. No Here worries. My name is Andrew Popel. Extremely excited to be introducing my guest. We are Zooming from across the planet. It's the only way to travel at the moment because airlines, psh, talking about it, coming to me from London is Yasmin Abdelmajid. And just a, just a quick intro. Well, hang on. Hello, Yasmin. I'm going to introduce you, but hello. It's Hi. great to have you back. Thanks for having me back. Now, if you are not a regular listener, you didn't catch Yasmin on the show last year, uh, and you have never encountered her incredible writing, Yasmin's bio is a veritable choose-your-own-adventure of cool stuff. She is an engineer who has run oil and gas rigs, a Formula One mechanic, a social advocate, a writer, novelist, public intellectual. Have I got everything? I think I, I, I got kind of caught up in being your hype person. I don't know if I've accurately reflected that. I've probably missed some stuff too. To be honest, I just love the hype. The hype is what I'm here for. She's somebody that does a lot of things is kind of, is how I introduce myself generally. So, so that works. I like, yeah, you're just like, hey, I couldn't settle on one thing. So now that's my bio. Well, yeah, you know, the thing is, right. I often think like there is just so much cool stuff to do in the world. So like, why not try and do as much of it as possible? Which, you know, isn't necessarily the the recipe for um, deep diving into one particular craft and becoming an expert, but it's definitely a recipe for a lot of fun. Look, you're talking to someone who who's knocked off their day job and has like excitedly gotten online to talk to you to make this show. You're singing to the choir here. Yeah, <laughs> I wanna I wanna zoom in though because this is not uh, like final engine thing. I shouldn't name podcasts. Uh, this is final draft, and <laughs> your new book, talking about a revolution, it collects your essays, writings, and speeches from the past ten or more years. The collection is deservedly getting a lot of attention. People can Google you, and there are so many great conversations. So I, I want to put an individual spin I would like to explore. Yasmin as storyteller. And I thought, let's jump off on this. I started off, I listed just some of your work and achievements in your, in your young life. But I want to know when you, not you the engineer, not you the mechanic or successful TED speaker, when did you, the writer and storyteller, or when did you know that was a part of who you were? Mm, great question. I think I have, in a sense, for a long time known that I like telling stories, but I didn't really necessarily think of myself as a storyteller or even specifically a writer until very recently. Mm. I think as somebody who, you know, being Sudanese and growing up in a sort of an oral storytelling culture, I think the 
the skill of telling stories is something you're exposed to from a really early age. You know, the, there's always one auntie or one uncle who you love sort of sitting with and can be entertained for hours on end. The way that the culture comes together is that people sit around and, you know, we don't, drinking is not part of the culture. Drinking alcohol is not part of the culture, but sitting around drinking tea and, and telling, swapping stories over and over, whether it's stories about people in the family or stories about, you know, historical events or political events. That was just how I kind of grew up. And I very, from a very early age, learned the skill of, of holding court, as it were, of being able to tell a story about a thing that's happened to me in a way that would entertain the family or entertain the grandma or entertain an intergenerational group of people um, in a way that made me feel good as well as sort of contributed to the, to the overall kind of family ecosystem. So from an early age, I think I loved telling stories. However, I don't think, I mean, the shift to becoming, to putting those oral stories into writing um, happened, you know, probably um, when I was in my very early 20s. So when I was 16, I started this organization, Youth Without Borders. And as part of that, I would go around and speak to lots of different groups of people and tell them about Youth Without Borders and, and, and essentially tell them the story of this organization. And I remember this one particular time, I must have been 19 or 20. I was telling, talking to a group of young people at one of the colleges at the University of Queensland where I studied. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said to me, she was like, you do you write? And I was like, mm, no, I'm an engineer. I don't write. And she was like, well, you know, you should, you should really consider it. And I was like, okay, this is just some random woman who I didn't like never met before. And she was like, the thing is you're a very good speaker, but when you speak and you tell a story in a room, at most you affect the people in that room. Maybe, you know, somebody they might tell about what they've heard, but when you write, your words will live beyond you. They will go out into the world and they will have a life of their own and they will last for longer than you ever will. So really consider writing as a way to, you know, get your ideas out into the world. And I was like, okay, thank you for that unsolicited advice, random person. But obviously it planted a seed. And then, a few, you know, a year or two later when I started working on the rigs, you know, like everybody else in the, in the 2010s, I started a blog. And I then started engaging in the idea of writing as like a method of communication, mm. right? Like I was just communicating a story. I didn't really think of it as like, I, did, I didn't have a sense of writing as a craft, right? I, my understanding of it was very utilitarian. Mm. I'm experiencing this thing and I'm telling somebody this thing has happened. And my first book, Yasmin Story, I think is very much in that vein. It's very much like as if I'm sitting down and talking to you and I'm just imparting information. To be really honest, Andrew, I would say it wasn't until 2021, really. So only last year mm. when I was really fortunate to um, get an Australia Council uh, residency in in Paris, where I spent, you know, a little over six months at, in this sort of artist's residency, where I had the opportunity for the first time to be like, okay, am I going to take this writer thing seriously? And if I'm going to take it seriously, what does that look like? What does it mean for me to take this role seriously? Like I'd written a few books by that point, but it had always been this something, you know, that was 
maybe on the side because it wasn't something I knew how to fully engage with or I, I couldn't really understand, honestly, if I was very good at it. But sitting down last year, ready to write, you know, a bunch of the essays that are now in this collection, I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to take this seriously, this craft seriously, well, then I need to take it, I need to approach it in the same way that I approached studying engineering or, you know, any other thing that, you know, I spent, I dedicated time and energy and critical attention to. Um, so I would say that I'm somebody who very, only very recently has decided that being a writer, quote unquote, is is the noun, the, you know, the primary noun that I will use to describe myself by. Um, we are, yeah. we are absolutely just going to leave aside your casual, I'd already written a few books and then I thought maybe I should take this seriously. <laughs> I want to. I want to pick the I, I, writer Yasmin. You go get yourself a coffee. I need to talk to engineer Yasmin because that was where you trained, and you know, this is mm. a technical craft. No matter where your engineering is taking you, like you can't casually just leave something half done or imperfectly done. Does your engineering brain? if it's meaningful to separate them, does your engineering brain ever talk to you about writing as a craft? Do you see the crafting in similar ways? Mm. I certainly think about, well, for me, what I think engineering has taught me and something that I will never be able to undo really is like the approach one takes to any kind of work in the sense that, you know, I think about things as a process and I think about things through like a systems lens. And, Mm -hmm. and so um, I'm always kind of looking at whether it's an essay or a novel or, you know, even something as basic as like, what application am I going to use to write this thing on? Right. Like, I'm always like, what is the problem and what are the parts to the problem and how can I sort of solve that? Or, and how can, or how can I kind of think about it logically or rationally? Um, and also to be honest, it, it quite often influences the kind of the literal metaphors that I use in my work. So like one of the essays is called um, empowerment versus power. And it's kind of this, you know, quite philosophical take on what are ways that we can think about power in, in movements and progressive movements and the way into that for me, I think maybe surprisingly to some readers is through, you know, physics, thermodynamics and complexity theory. And it's trying to use the sort of like the very technical um, and scientific ways that I see the world and understand the world in order to explain something in the social sciences or in, or in society. And so not only I think does it affect the process that I take, but I, I think it also literally affects the way that I think about how to explain various things that I'm interested in. The, the one other thing I'll say is that like, it allows me, I think, more so than maybe somebody who has been trained in the humanities, it gives me sometimes the permission to separate myself from my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trained in a, in a tradition where, you know, the thing that you build does not necessarily reflect on whether or not you're a good person, 
right? Whereas I think sometimes when it comes to writing, I can be like, have I written a good thing? And if I haven't, then maybe I'm a bad person. Like, you know, it's it, because it's creative, because it comes from you, there's this real connection to the work. Um, and any, any sort of rejection or criticism can feel really personal. But I think sometimes that being an engineer allows me um, a bit of distance between myself and my work. Um, because I haven't kind of associated my identity in the same way uh, with my creative output. Mm. I really, does that make sense? Uh, it, it does. It does. And I wanted just to note in empowerment and power, I really, I'm not even going to pretend to paraphrase here, but I did in, appreciate and enjoy your, your use of sort of the analogy of entropy growing in a system to, to sort of, yeah, make the point that you were making there. You were talking about you. your, your early life, there and throughout um, throughout some of the more biographical essays, you discuss your family uh, coming to Australia, arriving in Brisbane, being uh, the only or one of the only Sydney's families. And I wondered about that need to tell your story before someone else tells it for you. You are, you are mm. you know, as the sort of the most minority of minorities, if you are, you know, one of only a few families and your title, your title comes from the iconic Tracy Chapman song, talking about a revolution. Chapman's refrain is that revolution sounds like a whisper, but can mm. you reflect though, what that means about telling your own story? How important is it to raise your voice to tell before you are told <laughs> Mm. And yeah, thank you also for referencing the song talking about revolution. I um, I'll sing it. As I, I say, love that song. I won't sing it. That'll ruin such the interview. A, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't do it either. But it's such a good song, and it's a song that like has been, you know, has the whole album has appeared in my life over and over again since you know since I could since I could walk really. Um, I think there's something this something about this book coming out at the time that it has come out in the form that it has, I've described it as like a coda to my twenties, you know, a very tumultuous decade for me. Um, a lot of people have tried to tell my story on my behalf. Mm. Um, and, and quite often in ways that I, you know, find completely separate from how I've experienced something or how I've experienced my own life. And so uh, one of the objectives for this book for me, in a sense, was to, was to get some agency back really was to be able to, um, to essentially write the record, right? Because I think, you know, you sort of talk about more broadly that experience of being a minoritized, you know, from a minoritized community. Um, I think that part of the challenge quite often is we're so busy trying to live and trying to survive in a particular environment. You don't actually have the time to write your own history or to write things as they're happening in order to exist in those history books. You know, history is written by the quote unquote victors, but ultimately what that means is the people who have the time and the space and the capacity and the resources to sit down and write history books get to get to decide the story that is told. And I think one of my, I think, drivers maybe really as somebody who writes is, well, let me write my own history and write the record that I think is true for posterity. Um, because 
because I don't trust everybody else to write the version of it um, that I think is the truest. And I mean, you know, history is also a battle of narratives, um, but at least we need to be in the game, right? At least we need to be on that, on that battlefield because um, I think for so long, you know, if, um, if a history is oral and it's never captured, um, it's very easily lost. And I think um, there is, there is definitely something uh, for me that's vital about um yeah, having having at least my entry uh, into into this great fray, and of course, what you just described there about the that sort of juxtaposition of oral and and written history is a live discussion in Australia mm. uh, around the you know relative sh- tiny to enormous histories that are um you know that exist in this land. And, of course, being the Mm. victor is one way to write the story. Um, You know, having the loudest voice, not being spoken over, not having your voice appropriated are all very live things in telling your own story. But in the opening essay, Words Mean Things, you explore even more fundamentally at at, um, almost almost the smallest unit of meaning, at the the unit of the words of our language. Mm. Meaning is shaped through culture. What can you tell us about what you've learned in your work about who makes the rules of language and and, and how that affects us, Mm. how that affects us as storytellers? Yeah. So the essay words mean things kind of came out of two, you know, parallel conversations that I've been having with myself and others for actually a few years now. One has been about the, like, the deep frustration at what feels like the slippery, the slipperiness of our current kind of public discourse and, and the sense that these words that we use are constantly co-opted. So words that have one particular meaning, whether it's, you know, quote unquote woke or freedoms, freedom of speech or cancel culture or identity politics, these words that might have come with original kind of meanings and that have been so warped um, and, and used in such different ways, um, quite often pejorative ways by the very people they initially, in reference to the very people that usually sort of came up with them. And that is a fascinating phenomenon, number one. And number two was also, you know, a much more personal one, which was around the, the words used to describe the self, you know, for me, um, as somebody who's like born in Sudan and of the African diaspora, the word that I, you know, whether it's brown or black or what language I used to describe race um, and so on was something that had been contested, I think, and changed over time. And, and I guess I sort of, so I take it back in the essay and I start with, you know, I'm not somebody who's read a lot of philosophy, but I start with, you know, a philosopher, Wittgenstein, who talks about the idea of language or words getting meaning from their context, right? This idea of the language rules actually being very much situated in in this in the culture or the place or even literally the conversation that it is used in, right? Like um, I if I said to you like, Oh, I'm fine, Andrew, that might mean one thing. But if, you know, if I, if I cut across somebody in a line, you know, in an English um, office here in the UK and somebody says, Oh, I'm fine. That could actually mean like, you're a terrible person and I hope you die. Right. It's the same, it's the same phrase, but the context is completely different. And therefore the meaning is completely different. 
classic, classic, right? Like, honestly, I, somebody said to me, oh, Britain needs to have a difficult conversation with itself. And I was like, has Britain ever had any difficult conversations? Like, I don't think they have the skill set. Um, Britain would spend the afternoon say, like, avoiding also- itself. <laughs> Oh yeah, 100%, 100%. <laughs> they um they are uh, yeah, it's 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 certainly something. Um and so, you know, the the kind of one of the things that I point to um in the essay is that like if language rules are give if context give, gives meaning to words, then the language rules are kind of who gets to control those language rules essentially control the kind of the power and the battle lines really. And if we're thinking about, you know, there's this um, Guardian columnist that I referenced, Nisri Malik, who kind of says, you know, these quote unquote culture wars that were constantly being talked about that are constantly being talked about at the moment, regardless, putting aside the fact that like most people, I don't think could tell you what the culture wars actually are. It's, you know, it's this kind of thing that happens at an elite level in, in I think, you know, um, media and political folks who spend a lot of time, you know, regurgitating sort of um, slogans or whatever it might be. And, and ultimately what they're doing is they're controlling language rules because if this is a battle of narrative, then the person or those who control the language rules kind of control the conversation. And I think what's interesting for us is people who might be more interested in a progressive politics and more interested in a world where you can actually have a conversation without having those rules changed halfway through. Because if I'm talking to you about identity politics in the way that the Combi River Collective meant it in the late seventies, where they were saying that, you know, we are a group of people, queer women of color from different backgrounds, and we are, you know, trying to bring politics and identity together in order to, to get these outcomes for us as a group. If that's the way I'm meaning it, but the way that, you know, and I bring that up in a conversation and the rules get shifted halfway through and all of a sudden we're talking about it in a completely pejorative sense, I have lost balance, right? Like mm-hmm. I can't have the conversation that I want to have. I think the interesting thing is how do we, again, claim agency? You know, what does it look like for us to reframe um, the language rules, to bring it back to, you know, the way, do we, do we come up with different words? Do we go, do we try to change um, or remind people of the original meaning? Do we, you know, find ways to, to literally um, change the field that we're playing on? I think this is what I want us to think about is like, I, I have maybe fallen into the trap myself of being like, oh no, this word originally meant this. And that because it's used this way, that's wrong. And we should just remember the original meaning that is not a strategy that has necessarily brought us success, right? So we need to change strategy. We need to look at different ways to, um, we need to, to gain power over those language rules again. I really, I, I just thought identity politics was what happened when you called old, old white men white and they, they didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, well, that's that's what they they that's that's so powerful that they have fully claimed it, yeah. right? But actually, it came from somewhere completely different. And it's so in, so incredible the way 
people will bend over backwards to change meanings only to reassure you that meanings have never changed. And it, it usually, yeah. it seems to be a very reductive process where we want to take away people's rights of, of self-actualizing, of, of saying, self-actualizing, mm. Andrew, I hate you, um, of talking yeah. about themselves <laughs> in the way they want to talk about themselves. <laughs> yeah. And also I think, I, I mean, I find, you know, I, I find myself flip-flopping between, you know, this is a book that is titled talking about a revolution, mm. right? Um, and because I'm interested in, you know, before we get to the revolution, what, like, let's have a discussion about what we want it to look like. And we let's also have a discussion about how we survive victory. If the revolution does happen, what is the world? How will we survive that? Um, you know, there, there are many revolutions that ostensibly, uh, the revolutionaries won and then they weren't able to build the world that they wanted afterwards because, you know, the process of fighting and winning, mm. you know, a traditional revolution is not the same as building the world afterwards. So I'm really interested in thinking of like, what is the world that we want to build? And so I am obviously very interested in language at the same time. I, there's another thinker that I reference in that first essay, Words Mean Things, named Walter Benjamin, who I find super fascinating, who talks about fascistic governments. Actually, what they do is they keep all the focus just on symbols and language because that keeps us away from the real work of material reform, mm. right? Because if we're focused, if the battle is only narrative, if the battle is only symbols, then we're not actually working on changing the policies so people have better housing, changing, you know, funding for, you know, welfare and, and, and so like we're not actually making life safer necessarily for people. And so there's this constant tension that I am – playing with of like yes narrative like language creates the world in a sense and at the same time language cannot be the only thing that we focus on otherwise we are uh, there is another type of power that we are abdicating mm. so many th so many thoughts so many thoughts while we are talking about a revolution do you want to make a note though no guillotines um no guillotines no, yes yeah <laughs> Just, just at the planning yeah, not, stage. Not, yeah, the French. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. Not, um, they needed to talk about that. It's not a French version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They needed to have a bit of a chat. If we are talking about a revolution, there are a few requisite things. We are going to need a platform and we are going to need an audience. And I want to I start with platforms. As a writer who, who works across different types of media, how do you feel about the various platforms your work finds? I mean, we're talking about a book right now, but I'm thinking particularly about that disparity in engagement, both like attention and response between books and social media. You choose the social media, but I know you have different experiences with different social media. Mm. It's really interesting, you know. I, I don't know if I have a a complete answer on this um, because I think it is, it's a real, like 
publishing the publishing industry makes it very difficult at the moment. I think I think it's worth reminding people that like publishing is like a commercial business, right? And so we might think of quite often, you know, beautiful art and literature and whatever, but ultimately publishers publish what they do because they think they can make money from it, right? Like these are big companies and it is a business where, you know, if they and the the way that it's set up at the moment is that like if you're an author, you not only have to write the book and are responsible for that, but you also have to kind of become a brand in your own right. Like that is the expectation. You are not necessarily going to get a publishing deal and then the publisher is going to handhold you through a process of beautiful marketing and um and, you know, telling all of the world how great you are and guiding you through a process where you feel sort of safe and, um, and, and like, ultimately, quite often what it is, is you publish a book and there might be like a little bit for most people, obviously, like it's different, I think, depending on the kind of platform you have. But also one of the questions a publisher will ask you is how big is your social media platform? Because what they want is a community and an audience that they can tap into straight away. They want to know that you have X number of followers that is like, uh, you know, that's a captive market. They want to know that you're going to be able to get quotes from all of these friends of yours who have blue ticks, you know? So I think there's a real challenge for authors at the moment. And I don't know if it's always existed like this or not, but where a lot of the responsibility or a lot of the the work of being a working writer is not only do you have to write the book, but you are responsible for putting that book out into the world. And therefore, whether you like it or not, you kind of have to engage with social media more often than not, regardless of how you feel about it. And, and then you have to ask, well, how is that affecting my work? Mm. Right? Like, um, is it easier maybe for me to put my stories out directly through a Substack than it is for me to go through the publishing process? Mm. Is it easier for me to, you know, share my thoughts on Twitter because there isn't, um, there isn't this huge barrier between me and the people following me. And and I know I'm kind of like sidestepping your question slightly, but I think I'm going to reframe it. Don't um, worry. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's like, there's the element of feeling like you don't really have much of a choice um, to, to engage with social media. If you, you know, as, as a, as an author who's publishing in the traditional context. And also I think that like, you know, when you put a book out in the world, you just don't get the same kind of feedback from readers Mm -hmm. in the same way, in the immediate way that you might get from something on a social media platform. Mm -hmm. And there is something that's quite mm, compelling and addictive almost about putting something out in the world and getting immediate response and immediate feedback and getting to hear what people think immediately. This book is a book of essays. It is not a book that people are going to read in five minutes and then immediately you know, send a response to me. It is something that they, they might buy and read over three years, you know, or they might buy, read one essay, have a bit of a think, come back in a few months, read another essay. Like, and I will never know really what all my readers think. I will never be exposed to the kind of conversations that people have amongst themselves as they, you know, read the book. And so there is something about, um, I think the, the immediacy and the, the sort of the thrill of um, the public aspect of social medias that I think can be quite compelling. That being said, the kind of, 
thinking and the kind of craft and the time that it takes when you are publishing in a more traditional context, I think for me is incomparable. I think that um, I have really valued and treasured, you know, the, the year it's taken me to put this essay collection together and I can come out of it being like, I gave that my all at this particular point in time. And so I can put that out into the world now and it kind of lives on its own. Um, and so I think it just, it just sits in a very, very different, um, a very different place. I actually think they are complementary as opposed to cannibalistic. I like I like that. I'm not going to try and pin you down in a, you know, <laughs> books are better or no, do it in a reel. We need we need Yasmin doing like a TikTok dance to Lizzo's about damn time, like slamming her transitions with talking about a revolution at the camera. I mean, I kind of have already done that, Andrew. That's the, that's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem is like, did, did, did what I, I just do, like is that, is I this don't what, have that much choice. Is this what people say when they talk about manifesting? Did I just manifest? Uh, you literally <laughs> manifested it because um, I literally did a reel with one of Lizzo's songs with talking about a revolution. I didn't do the transitions though because I'm terrible at this, but like, but do you know, it's also interesting as like, as somebody that's trying to get this book out to different audiences, it's like, you really you have to really think creatively about how you're going to get people to pick up the book because to your to your question it's all about attention and like it, you are competing as an author with like these massive tech companies who are obsessed with you know folks who are obsessed with like getting people's attention in different ways and so you have to kind of somehow find a way to get a scrap of that attention and to also get people to then put the phone down and read your book or listen to your book or whatever it might be. And that's like, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing, right? Like you are asking people to do something that is a slightly harder than spending time on TikTok. And I say this because I am that person as well. I have sometimes spent hours on TikTok when I have had a book sitting next to me that I've been meaning to pick up for three hours. So it is something where you are competing for attention and, sometimes with audiences that like, you know, if you're in your, if you're in your early twenties, you've grown up in a very online world. Um, And so you, maybe you don't even have like the muscle of sitting down and concentrating for hours to read a book is one that has to be maintained Mm. or has to be, you know, grown. And so like, that is also part of this kind of challenge is like, how do we, um, how do we encourage people to, come back to the book because there is something you get out of reading books that I think is fundamentally different to engaging with social media. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, listen, what if, if it takes me doing transitions on TikTok to get people to pick up my book, I am, I am going to do it. (laughs) I'm still, I'm, I'm just so proud of my, this is the most millennial I've ever felt like, just manifesting. <laughs> well done. Well I'm letting done. you. I'm letting you off the hook now. Writer Yasmin, take a deep breath because look, I love books. I love reading. I truly believe these acts have transformative power, but I also worry that we can hide behind or in our libraries. So I'm, I want to turn the lens on the reader. I am the canary in the coal mine here. I am. I am the reader. So take me down if you need to. Do you believe that reading matters? Like can reading, you know, just just reading something, does that alone change anything? 
Mm. I think reading matters, but like so many things, um, it can't exist on its own. Right. And in the same way that language takes meaning from its context, reading matters due to the context. Right. There are like different reasons people read um, and there are like, you know, people read to escape. People read to see themselves. People read for information. Um, I think that I have read my entire life, really, um, and it has enriched my life in a way that, you know, I'm not sure many other things can do in the same way. Um, but I also think it matters maybe more when we take what we read and we do something with it, right? Mm. Like reading, stopping at reading is fine, but there is so much more that it can do, mm. right? If it encourages us to um, go out into the world and, and do something differently, if it encourages us to, to, to self-analyze and, and perhaps, you know, change something or, or if a, a, a further and deeper understanding of ourselves allows us to be more gracious with the people around us. You know, I think that reading shouldn't just stop at simply being consumption of language and story, but, you know, a full understanding of reading for me is something that is not only about the story in the book, but about, you know, the book and the person and the reader's engagement with the world. Mm. I'm just thinking about like, you know, young, young, young readers, you know, how when you're young and everything, you feel like you've just discovered it for the first time, you know, and, and maybe, you know, such you're a good, such a good feeling. You're like, Oh my God, did you know about this guys? It is. But you know, maybe, maybe you're reading to kill a mockingbird. Maybe you're reading. I know why the cage bird sings and you just, she's like, Oh my God, everyone, did you hear there's injustice in the world? What the absolute, <laughs> but then yeah. like, if that hasn't changed your life, I, you know, I mean, this is what I want to believe. I want to believe that these these things are changing people's lives, and then they are going to fundamentally grow up to be a different person than they might have been. But if reading has to be more like if it ha if it is a it is not an end, but perhaps a, a step in a process. If our reading does call us call on us to act, I wonder though, can we ever? overcome some of our unconscious biases or are we all just you know kind of little self-perpetuating confirmation bias machines like this is this is a re very real thing in the world like we we have forces that operate below that level of consciousness mm. Do you know it's interesting i think like one of the things that i love doing is reading a book and then like getting involved in the conversation afterwards, mm. because for me with, I kind of strangely reading is a, is a very individual and private activity, but it's also a social one. It's also a social one in the way that we read books and then we talk about it. We read books and there's discourse. We read books. I read a book and then I go see what the reviewers have said. And I go see what Goodreads says. And I go see what Twitter says. And then I go talk to my friends about it. And listen and, to the final draft podcast. In those, yeah, and there's the final draft podcast. <laughs> and I go listen to the final draft podcast about it. You know, and in that conversation, you know, sometimes my reading of it is not everybody else's reading of it. Mm. And sometimes in that discourse, some of the assumptions that I have had maybe are challenged. And also I would say that I 
try not only just to read the things that I know are going to reinforce my own biases. And, and that's like sometimes uncomfortable. Not all the books I read are books I enjoy, you know, not all the books I read are books I agree with, but I think that's kind of, um, that's part of the, maybe you could say the pleasure of being a reader is that like, you can engage in works that stretch you in uncomfortable ways. And ma- and maybe you might put that book down and be like, that whole thing was trash. I don't even have time to finish it, for example. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess part of it for me, like we all have, as you say, unconscious biases. And I don't think, like it's not necessarily even possible for us to rid ourselves completely of all of the biases that exist at a subconscious level. But I think like the reality is our brains need cognitive biases to operate. However, the, the, the trick is to identify the biases that are actually going against our conscious stated values Mm. and be challenging them so that we kind of undo the shortcut that might reflect a patriarchal viewpoint Mm. and maybe replace it with one that is more just or one that is, you know, matriarchal, you know, replace that shortcut, Mm. replace a shortcut that might be racialized in a, in a white supremacist way with something that, you know, when, when you read something, you can actually start like telling yourself, Oh, I'm interpreting it this way, but actually maybe there's, there's another way. Um, and maybe you don't even know what you can replace it with yet, but then you go out and you read works mm. by, you know, you read the critique of it that's by a First Nations person, or you read the critique of it that's by somebody from that community. And that takes you down a completely different way of seeing. I mean, for me, some of my favorite, like one of one of, one of the books I've loved recently is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, which is a book, you know, about trans characters and a world that I know I have no lived experience of, but has taken me. And, you know, I don't even know that I would say I quite like agree or disagree necessarily. I don't think that's the experience of reading the book, but it has been something that's challenged my ideas of, um, of gender and, and sexuality in ways that I didn't even realize that I needed to be challenged on perhaps. And so that kind of reading for me is so fulfilling. Um, and, is the beginning of a kind of journey that I think is, is lifelong. Mm. I think too often we fall into traps. Like even I imagine you are a voracious reader. I am a voracious reader. We make time for our reading, but too often we fall into that trap of I'm so time poor. I don't have time to read. Or maybe you only read a couple of books a year. And the idea that you would read outside your comfort zone just feels like counterintuitive. And I need to mm. call, if you can call back um, engineer Yasmin here for a moment, I need to ask her, I'm sure there is an enormous pleasure in in tweaking like petrol head sounds and making that engine purr just perfectly but is there also a pleasure in you know fixing up a clunker or um taking something that you know maybe doesn't have i don't know what horsepower is 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 50 horsepower yeah. big <laughs> something no, that but that's okay yeah 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 <laughs> Maybe you want to work on Formula One, but maybe we can fix up a scooter. Like there is pleasure in doing those Mm. things, even if they are not Mm. part of like your immediate go-to. Oh, totally. And there are also other ways to engage with these books. Like sometimes, you know, I might not feel like I have time for, you know, 
every single book on every single long list of every single prize. But like, maybe what I'll do is I'll literally listen to like, and you haven't paid me for this, but listen to a podcast where the author is chatting or where people are chatting about the particular book, because again, the, the discourse around something can also be really enlightening in of itself. And like, you might, you might not feel like you have the time to read something that's uncomfortable, but maybe if you listen to one or two things about it, maybe at some point, you might then go back to that book and engage with it, or you might get an audiobook version of it and kind of consume it in a very different way. Or even the conversation that you hear about it might be enough to like plant a seed so that the next time a book in a similar genre or by the same author comes along and you think, oh, maybe this time I'll pick it up. I think that like it, there's just, you know, um, there's also something to be said for like, reading widely so you better understand your own taste um and reading and and i think that's something that i've kind of maybe been doing for the last couple of years is like really going beyond my comfort zone to be like oh maybe i am surprisingly enjoying this or actually i was pretty i was right on that this is not for me and i'm probably not going to pick up anything else like it but at least i've given it kind of a shot and maybe in five years i'll try something similar again just to test it out again um but i mean like part of the joy of being a human is constantly changing and evolving and, and, and it can be a bit scary and uncomfortable. Like quite honestly, I feel like a very old person on TikTok and sometimes it scares me and it annoys me that I have to learn new things, but I'm like, I guess that's life. You know, you just, you, you just got to keep learning. What a fantastic, what a fantastic way to, I guess, wrap this up with this idea that we do have to just keep learning and we have to exist in this relationship. You as, you as writer needs your readership and you as reader Mm -hmm. need thoughtful, funny, interesting, bad, good writers Without that relationship, this relationship that is so I'm, – I'm going super deep here. This relationship that is so fundamental, though, Go to on, what Andrew. we do on Final Draft, mm. um, it, it has to be about that relationship. And, Yasmin, you've been mm. so generous taking the time. Talking About a Revolution is your latest book, and I've enjoyed my conversation with Yasmin, the storyteller, Yasmin, the engineer, all of the very many facets of who you are that emerge in this incredible collection. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you also for for taking a, you know, a slightly different way into talking about this collection. Um, it's been really fun. Thank you. I loved it. I loved it. Thank you. And, yeah, thank you. Everything you had to say, I had all these amazing, crazy little tangents. You were talking about becoming a storyteller, and I'm just like, I, I want to, I want to know what your mum and dad would say about you as a story. Is there a cool <laughs> six year old Yasmin will not shut up, shut up at the family barbecue story? You don't have to tell me, but yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> everything. <laughs> Everything, um, yeah, it's it is one of the beautiful things. And if we if we can't escape this idea that language is about usage, well, then we might as well use it well, like I think we've tried to do. Thank you so much, Andrew. That's amazing. And like, I think you've got twenty minutes before your next thing. That's time to get a coffee. You've yeah, got your morning I'm later. Get a loo, touch <laughs> the, you know, get the throat lubricate the throat slightly but thank you so much for that i hope it was yeah i'm um hopefully people enjoy it and i'll share it when it goes out um and i really enjoyed it yeah and thank you for reading the book oh it's it's terrific and like you know what i i don't know if i can pay you a larger compliment 
you made the blockchain seem a bit interesting. Ooh, I mean that that is a huge compliment, mm. you know. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. You know, I don't, making those kind of ideas accessible. I, I mean, to me, crypto. that's the that's the marker of success, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I will let you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for your time. All right, enjoy your evening. Bye, Bye. Take care. Boom. That's it for this great conversation with Yasmin Abdel-Majid. Yasmin's new book is called Talking About a Revolution. It is a collection of essays. You absolutely have to check it out. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch with us. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I love talking books with absolutely anyone. So hit me up, at me, leave a comment, however you want to get in touch. I'm always happy to talk books with you. Subscribe in your podcast app. It means great conversations will be in your feed once or twice a week. Have you caught our book club segment? That pops out midweek. That's a great bite-sized way to discover new books. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from incredible Australian authors on Final Draft. Till then, happy reading. Bye for now.